Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church and its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to redchurch.org.au. God, thank you that we get a chance to open your word. Um, we feel the impetus is the years coming to an end. Uh, but we know you're a God of the future. And uh, we just want to thank you for this year, how you've worked in our church, grown us deeper. And Father, we're excited by what you're going to do next year. Uh, we have expectancy, faith, and hope of what you will do here at Red. Um, so we just continue to pray that you'll guide us forward. Uh, in your name, Jesus. Amen. Movies are a key part of Christmas for many people. You may have had a favorite movie, and there was a number that uh, I remember watching as a kid. I remember clearly a Charlie Brown Christmas. Uh, that was one I watched. Um, and there's something about Christmas which intersects with childhood. And often when you're thinking about what you're going to preach on when you get to Christmas, uh, often there are these various characters that appear in the biblical story. It could be the shepherds, the magi, uh, Mary, Joseph, Simeon, Anna, these different people who are key Characters that illustrate different truths about what God is doing as Jesus is incarnated into the world. But this year, I found my attention being drawn to something else, something different, which I'd never really contemplated or reflected upon. And I think it actually opens up some really interesting new insights, a reminder, perhaps things we haven't seen about the Christmas story. And that's the fact that when we turn to the prophecies that spoke of Jesus' coming, there's a really interesting detail. I'll see if you can pick it. Let's actually start with the first uh, reading from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. This is a prophecy pointing forward to Jesus' coming. And it says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." For to us, a child is born. Let's read on in Luke 2, verses 8 to 17. Now, this is the story that Britt preached on last week. And, uh, uh, but I want you to just keep your eye open for another theme that is at play here. It says this, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about them. So what had been told them about this child. Verse 12, a baby. 
We then see in verse 16, again, a reference to a baby. And in verse 17, again, a reference to a child. The symbol that came before my attention this year is the symbol of a baby or a child. Why is this important? Yesterday, I was at the shopping center and I was waiting at the front of a store while Trudy and Billy were inside doing some shopping. And I was just standing there and in front of me were a young family who had a young child, perhaps two, three uh, years old. And the child was just moving through the different people as people were very busily getting their Christmas shopping and doing all the things that they do on a Saturday, their food. Uh, it's normally a bit of a hectic time. And so people have a, tend to have a particular face on them as they're going about their business. They've got a list, they wanna get through it. Christmas is coming, there is some pressure. But what I noticed was different people, different ages, different backgrounds. This child, as it would come in their path, was not met with frustration that actually something about them changed when they saw the child. People who seemed busy and annoyed and going somewhere all of a sudden had smiles break over their faces. There's something about a child which changes us. And so as my attention was brought to this issue of, uh, or this image of a child or a baby, I thought back to a movie that I think I have not seen for at least over 10 years. And it's a movie that I watched years and years ago. And it's a movie that I watched because there are often all these lists. Like about 10 years ago, I was like, I want to watch the top rated films ever. Like what are the top 10s? You can get different top 10s, top 100s. And this film was in there. It was a film I'd never heard of. It's a film from 1948. Uh, it's an Italian film by Vittorio De Sica. Uh, it's called The Bicycle Thief, also known as The Bicycle Thieves. It was made with not a lot of money. It was made just after the war. Where it, uh, Italy had gone through the war. There was a lot of uh, devastation in the country. Uh, that devastation had an economic impact. And people were absolutely struggling to get by. And this filmmaker wanted to make a film about what it was like actually at that time. And he hired two actors, both who've never been act act acted before. And one was a small boy, who you'll see, who plays a character called Bruno, never acted before. And then there's the father who plays the character Antonio, also never acted before. Uh, the actor Lamberto Magigliani actually had come from a factory and he takes on this role, wasn't paid heaps for the role. Um, the movie then becomes this hit and he goes back to work in his factory because like for him, this wasn't like an avenue to becoming a star, but sadly people thought he must be a millionaire. So the factory that he was from turned on him and he sort of never really acted again. But the role that he plays in the movie and what the plot of the movie is, and it's, you can watch the whole thing on YouTube, it's up there for free. And um, I didn't put it up. Um, just happened to be there. And uh, the plot is effectively this. He's part of this poor family in Rome a couple years after the war. The family absolutely struggling to get by and many men are looking for work. He finally finds this job and it's the job of someone who will put up advertising posters throughout Rome. And the catch though is to have this job, which gives him back his dignity. This is a time when there's been a war 
Many people are, are trying to find their dignity to knit the culture back together. He's trying to be a provider for his family. And so he finally gets this job. But the catch is, to do this job, he's going to have to travel all over the city and he needs a bicycle. Money is tight. Bicycles are expensive. So his wife comes to this solution, which is to take their prized possession, which was given to them on their wedding, which is a set of sheets. may not seem as much to us, but this is the kind of thing that you could not replace. And so she takes it and sells these sheets to pay for the bicycle. Everything seems to be in its right order, and he has a job, he has the bike. But what happens is the bike is then stolen, and this means he can't do his job. So a lot of the story's drama is him, the father Antonio, and his small son Bruno going throughout Rome trying to relocate the bicycle. They finally sort of track down the thief and they bring him before the police, but the police don't really believe the father Antonio and the thief gets away. And the only recourse he has is to actually somehow find this bike. This is a time when there's not many cars. Everyone just rides bikes around Rome. And he's going from place to place trying to get his bike back. It's not just about getting his bike back. The bike is a symbol. It's actually about getting his dignity back, his sense of self, his pride. Now, what I'm going to show you is the last five minutes of the movie. So, it, yes, this is a spoiler. Um, but if you'd come today going, oh, one day I want to watch that 1948 Italian neo-realist movie, The Bicycle Thieves, and I hope no one ruins it today. I'm really sorry. <laughs> Last five minutes. And what I want you to note is, is there's very little dialogue. But what's incredible, these two untrained actors, their facial expressions, their bodily expressions are just tell stories, tell volumes. And for me... This scene is one that I remember. And the thing that just burnt into my memory and the reason why I chose to go back to this film after not seeing it for a long time is because of the expressions particularly on Bruno's face, the little boy. It says so much than words can communicate. So where we're in this final scene, I'll just set it up for you and then I'll just say one more thing. Uh, the dad and his son have gotten to the football stadium and out the front of the football stadium, because there's a game on, there is just a sea of hundreds, if not thousands, of bikes. And this sense of desolation comes over him, knowing there's just no way he's going to find his stolen bike amongst all these bikes. He looks left and sees at the front of an apartment building a bike, not chained up, just sitting there. And all of a sudden, the man who has been searching for his stolen bike, an agent of justice, all of a sudden is tempted. Now, just before we dig in, that's the setup. I'm going to pick it up there, and it's going to go right to the end of the movie. It's only about five minutes. Years and years ago, I had the real privilege of working under a fantastic preacher uh, when I was like in my 20s, and uh, he's Michael Frost. He's still around, and just an incredible preacher, one of the best storytellers I've ever heard. And he's so brilliant at talking about different ways of Christian interpretations of art and movies. And one thing I learned from him is to ask the question, who is the Jesus character in a particular scene or movie? Humans have eternity written in their heart. And so often when we tell stories, 
you'll see these Jesus figures coming in at moments. Not every movie has one. Not every story has one. But I think there's one in this scene. I'm going to let you work out who you think it is. So the dad's just come to the football stadium. Does he try and find his bike? But a temptation arises. Let's kick it off. There's a number of elements I want to pull out of this scene. First of all, you don't have to say this out loud, but maybe just reflect now, having seen it, who is the Jesus character in the story? And I think this actually, when we examine it, shines a light on the Christian story. The Vatican actually named this as a film which captured an element of what the Christian story was. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And this is something, if you say this today, that people are quite shocked by. We have a very binary understanding of good and bad. Somewhere there's the bad people, where mostly probably not them is what most people think. And somehow if we can just get the bad people away from us, if we can deal with them through violence or cutting them off, then we'll be fine because we're the good people. But what Paul is saying in Romans is, hang on, all of us have fallen short. And I think this scene, particularly the first part of this scene, is a brilliant illustration. As I said, the expressions and the body language give away so much. The Father Antonio is caught in this going backwards and forwards. He walks backwards and forwards, his body overtaken by stress in this moment. He knows the game is coming to an end. His chance to find his bicycle is diminishing. He has to provide for his family. So what does he do? And in this moment, you see a human being who is reduced to a kind of particular state. Now, something Paul also spoke about in the New Testament was this idea that humans were living under what he called the flesh. The flesh is this concept that after the fall, when Adam and Eve sin in the garden, the humans then find themselves disconnected from the tree of life. We face our own mortality, our own fragility, and our own fallenness. And it's in these moments when we feel fragile, that we have to do something, that our weakness is made obvious, that therefore that we then try and fight our flesh with the flesh. And it's actually in moments of fragility that people fall. What I've learned now from years of doing ministry, sitting with people who have found themselves doing something they never thought they would, that has deeply compromised themselves, is people rarely get up one morning and go, hey, in two weeks' time, I'm going to do this bad thing. That there's always a process. That there's always a pattern that emerges. That people find themselves entangled. They're trying to do something. And oh, sometimes it's even noble what they're originally trying to do, but they do it in the human strength, and this leads to fallenness. That Antonio, for the whole movie up to now, has been this agent of justice trying to do the right thing. He's been someone who has been harmed. His bike has been stolen. He's the victim of injustice. 
But in this moment, because he does not know what to do about it, the person who's had something stolen from him himself becomes a thief. And actually, it's this concept of flesh which helps us understand fullness. It's not body or there's anything wrong with the body in of itself. It's more this sense that when we try and do things in our own power, apart from God, is that this is what causes the world to be torn asunder. Now, this adds a different layer to understanding the Christmas story. In John 1.14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we've seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus comes in the flesh to show us those under flesh how not to fall into fragility and weakness and trying to do it in our own strength apart from God. But instead, he comes in the way of grace and in the way of truth. Now, what we see here for Antonio is because he's in the flesh, he finds himself encased in this moment. He then finds himself in a context, a scenario, which again, no one plans to be in, but humans find themselves here of what the scriptures call temptation. And the temptation can be manifold. The temptation can be one to do something in your own strength. It can be a temptation to take something which is not ours. Have you ever been in a space where you are completely in a good way and you're feeling balanced and you're feeling centered and you're feeling confident and then you work with someone or you're in a relationship with someone who is super insecure, who says biting things, who undercuts other people and they start going at you and all of a sudden you find yourself reacting in a way that you didn't think you would. It's like their flesh is like springing something out of your flesh and you think, oh my goodness, how did I get here? You find yourselves tempted to do and say things that you didn't think you would. Let's go to the next picture. And this scene incredibly catches that dynamic. Incredible shot. You see Antonio, his feet pointing away. Almost half of him does not want to do this. His feet are pointing the opposite direction, but there's a sideways glance. His hand at his chin in a moment of reflection. Before a fall often comes first a thought. Jesus said in Matthew 26 verse 41, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is said to his disciples. This is not just said to people who don't have any understanding that you will find yourself in contexts, scenarios, relationships, entanglements, where we find ourselves in a position of temptation, where we can cross this line. Liddy pointed out as we were preparing the PowerPoints for this, and I was showing her the images that I wanted to use from the film, and I missed it, but it's a really key insight that the telephone pole acts as a kind of border. We all will be tempted by different things, different scenarios. 
We'll be tempted in different ways, but we won't always act on them. And Martin Luther once said that you can't stop the birds flying over your head, but you can stop them nesting in your hair. And so you see in this scene, if you watch it, there's a bit where he's walking away. He's almost like, I'm not going to do it. Yeah, the bottom half of his torso is pointing away. He turns and then he makes this decision. And it's almost the point where he crosses that line. That's when we're now engaging. The thought is now something that his flesh is now walking out. Jesus said to be aware of these moments. These moments come up on us when we're not expected. They rarely come up on us when we're strong and confident and hungry and happy. They can come then. But often they come when we're weak, unconfident. We start compromising in our minds, like everyone else is doing it. Oh, would it really matter? James 1 verses 14 to 15 says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has been conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, bring forth death. And in this situation, you can see that playing out. This isn't just something which doesn't have a, uh, an effect. This has a gigantic effect. Like instantly, the very quiet street scene, which is idyllic and beautiful, all of a sudden turns to a chaotic one. There's like a mob. There's people coming out of doorways and instantaneously, when that line is crossed and the act is engaged in, you see the social dislocation. What is inner and a thought all of a sudden comes out through our flesh and into the community. And at this point, in this image, Antonio is in many ways like Adam and Eve in the garden. The first temptation begins with just a thought, a question posed by the serpent. What if? Did God really say? A question. And what I find interesting is that in many ways, this is exactly like the Garden of Eden. That for humans, the human condition is that that temptation keeps coming back. That all of us struggle to escape it. There are moments where we find ourselves in the same way back in the garden with the serpent asking a question, what if? may not be the serpent, it may be our desire, it may be our sense of we've got to, we feel like there's been an injustice and we've got to do it in our own strength. Humans are endlessly trapped in the Edenic temptation. You'll notice that when he's going backwards and forwards, he's actually going back between two places. He's going back from the bicycle the opportunity to steal someone who's been stolen against. Is that a term? Stolen against? It is now. And he goes back to his son, Bruno. And there's almost like, which way will he go? Will he go the way of stealing the bicycle? Or will he stay in his role as the father, as the example? And he tries an out, and we do this. He tries to come to a sort of solution, as often we do. And he gives his son, some coins or money to jump on the tram and go away. Why? It's really interesting. Because children change contexts. What he's about to do, he doesn't want his son to see. He gives him the money, go on the tram, go away, I'll meet you in this place. But it doesn't go the way he expects. Bruno misses the tram. And for me, 
as I remembered this, what I remembered from, I don't know, however many years ago I watched this movie. I've not seen it for at least over a decade. But what is stuck in my mind is one particular image, and it's this. It's the image of Bruno, who up to this point, his dad's a hero. His dad's someone he looks up to. His dad is the center, the rock in his life. And the shock, the indignation, and you see in his facial expression almost that sense that his world's falling apart at that moment. And I think this casts a really interesting light on the gospel story. Why a child? Why a baby? What's the meaning of this? Christmas is the celebration of Jesus coming as a child into the world. Jesus could have come as a fully grown man. In fact, it probably makes more sense that out of the Judean desert arose this incredible, fully formed, super strong, tall, striking man with a booming deep voice which could command armies. Someone who is a replica of a King David, but even better. Perhaps a governor, perhaps a prophet fully formed, perhaps a wise, older, a wise older sage. But no, Jesus comes as a child. And this is important culturally. You see, Roman culture absolutely marginalized children. It did not value them at all. In fact, it was more than just in the Victorian era where they said children should be seen, not heard. Roman culture actually practiced infanticide, where after they were born, it was common practice in some places to do away with children. And so children in any culture are fragile and vulnerable. But in this context, in a land oppressed by the Romans, children were particularly fragile and vulnerable. But you see in this scene that the presence of a child changes the entire moral ethic of a moment. By purely being present and existing, they make us think differently about what is right and wrong. Don't say that in front of the children. I can't believe that happened. Children saw that. There were children present. The world watches with horror at what has been happening in Israel and Palestine. And one of the things that goes viral online that is what John Robb would call an empathic uh, trigger, is images of children suffering. And both sides have them and they go viral online. And it's something that gets us upset and emotional. It's hard to be rational and disconnected and a cold calculus when children are involved. And in some ways, I think this scene helps us understand judgment in an interesting way. The, Old Testament prophets talked about one day when God would return, the day of the Lord would come and it would come and it'd be this blessing and it would be this incredible thing, but there'd also be this sense that it brought judgment against sin. And so often when we talk about the idea of judgment, we can think of, I don't know, a stern teacher, an angry judge, an overzealous police officer. But in this scene, and by this time, I'm guessing you probably worked out that Bruno, I think it's the Jesus character, the young boy. So you see the young boy's heart breaking over 
his father's actions. There's a sense of pain, a sense of indignation, a sense of shock. And the scriptures show us a God who is hurt when we fall short. In this moment, we see judgment, but it's different. It subverts some of our paradigms that we'd bring. And the presence of children is really important in the Christmas story. In any time, children symbolize the future. The American writer Neil Postman said that children are the living messages we send to a time we will not see. Jesus says they're guides to the kingdom of God, that when we see children, they educate us about the kind of kingdom that is coming. In Mark 10, verse 14, he says, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. There's something about children that teaches us about the kingdom. But there's also a danger that we can then misinterpret that as the answer then is childishness. To look at the gospels in the way that the character Ricky Bobby looks at Jesus in the movie Talladega Nights. We're going from top 100 great films down to uh, less um, art house cinema where they're praying over their meal of Domino's pizzas, KFC, and Taco Bell. And Ricky Bobby, the NASCAR driver, played by Will Ferrell, says he only wants to pray to baby Jesus. His wife gets frustrated, and he's, he just wants to pray to baby Jesus. And there can be an element that we just want to see Jesus as the baby because we want a kind of childish faith. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, Paul says this, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So this is not talking about childishness, but it's learning from the symbol of children who point to the future. And in this, we see When Jesus comes as a baby, then as a child, that God is working in history. God is doing something which points to the future. Now in this scene as well, and I didn't pick this up until I watched it a few times, again, seeing the boy as the Jesus character. His father has been chased by the mob. His father is caught. His father is condemned. He's about to go to the police station. And if you notice in the background, Your attention first is what's happening with the father. You worry he's going to be beaten or something. But you notice what the boy does is he picks up his father's hat and he walks behind him and he does something. With his hands, he begins to clean the hat. The boy, who is hurt and broken by his father's actions, who's devastated, whose opinion of his dad should completely change in that moment. And yet he's walking behind, dusting off his hat. God is pursuing us, even when we're not aware. This cleaning of the hat is a signal of what is to come in the scene. Francis Thompson 
who was a Christian poet in the 19th century, wrote an incredible poem called The Hound of Heaven, where when he was addicted to opium, living in alleyways in 19th century London, opium houses, opium dens or whatever they used to call them, he wrote about God, Jesus pursuing him the way that a hound pursues a rabbit. Even when he didn't want God, God was pursuing him. And that's what I like about this scene, although the image is not a hound or a big stern judge coming after him, it's a child. You see, children don't really hold grudges. And the signal of that scene then shows what comes next. The man with the hat who says that this bike is all he has in the world. He's in the same predicament in post-war Italy, a time of poverty, that Antonio was himself. All he has is his bike, and your bike was a means to you having a job and putting food on the table. And the man in the hat says, this is all I've got. The great irony here is that Antonio has had this injustice done against him, and yet he now does this to someone else. And isn't this the case? All of us can think of different ways in which we've been hurt. All of us can think of different ways in which relationships have stung us. Yes, the saying goes, hurt people hurt. And there are probably other people who have that story of us. But what happens in this moment is something which is captured by that word, not often used in the culture, but evident in this moment, grace. Antonio stolen the bicycle. This man has every right to take him to the police station and have Antonio charged and probably sent to prison. But in this moment, he lets him off even though he is guilty. You see, Christmas is the initiation of grace. It's the beginning of grace, the story of grace that will move towards the cross that we celebrate at Easter. But Christmas, we celebrate its beginning, its start. In Titus 2, verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared. Christmas is also about the time of the grace of God appearing, bringing salvation to all men. And what's interesting about this scene is a couple of things. First of all, he says, this is all he has, the man in the hat. Second thing is the crowd is wanting justice. They're arguing who's going to take Antonio to the police station. They're angry. They're slapping him on the face. There's just that visceral mob-like justice that comes at moments. But the man in the hat is a bit older, perhaps a father himself, looks down and sees the presence of young Bruno, he doesn't say a word, he sees the expression on his face. And in that moment, he chooses, despite being wronged himself, because of the presence of the child, he chooses grace. And so what we celebrate this time of year is the presence of the child who brings grace. Grace is, in many ways, you could argue, the central organizing principle of the Christian life, that we no longer have to strive in the flesh, do it in our own power. We can't flesh, fight flesh with flesh. Antonio, who tried to initiate justice in his own means, ends up doing an injustice, doing the exact same thing in an ironic fall. 
So we celebrate the coming of Jesus, but we also celebrate the coming of grace into the world. Now, many of you will remember a moment when grace first came into your life, when you realized what Jesus had done for you, that it was unmerited, it was undeserved, and yet it was given as a gift of grace. And this grace should be central to then how we live our lives. Martin Luther said this, faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. Living, daring confidence in God's grace. So sure and certain that a man could stake his life on it a thousand times. And what Luther is saying here is that when we've experienced grace, this then should be transformative, that this should change who we are. It's one of the great themes of Les Miserables. If you've seen that movie or you've read the book, the transformative notion of grace should change the trajectory of one's life. It should lead us into living, daring confidence, a steadfastness, a conviction. And some of us have that. But something can linger. So Antonio, having received grace in this incredibly powerful way, being let off, their disaster of going to jail has now passed. But the final scene is just, I think, heart-wrenching of this dad who knows he should be an example. Even one of the men had said to him, a fine example you are for your young son, you should be ashamed. The other man says to him, thank God for what has happened. Again, all these fascinating little details that knit the story together. Thank God for what has happened, but you should feel shame. And those two things are often operational in our lives. You see, shame is hard to get rid of because shame is not a thought that you can just cognitively, behaviorally, therapily out of your mind. Shame is more a feeling than a thought. And you see this in this scene as Antonio is walking away. His face is downcast. It's almost visceral, the change that comes over his face. And it happens as he looks at his son's face, who looks up at him, and he can't meet his eyes. He can't be seen in his presence. His dignity... His pride, his identity as a man, as a dad, as an example, is in tatters. And you see, shame is a huge part of the after effect of the fall. Adam and Eve realize that they're naked once they eat of the fruit, and they feel shame. And shame leads to hiddenness and running away. Rob Rima, when he was here, talked about shame at the Soul Care Conference and said that when someone's in shame, it almost inverts them. We look downwards. We can't look at other people. And particularly faces are staring into someone's eyes, are seeing their expressions become almost repugnant and repellent when we're feeling shame. We don't want anyone to see us. Shame lingers even when we've received grace, like in this scene. 
Antonio has received an incredible moment of grace, yet he is still filled with shame. But what I love is the final, final moment where there is the second coming of grace. Grace does not need to happen again. It's been done. Antonio has been freed. He's not going to jail. This man has given him his life back. And he walks off still captured in shame. But there's this incredible second coming of grace. It doesn't need to be done again, but it's rather a reassurance of grace. And it happens when Bruno, seeing his father did not want to look at him, looks up and grabs onto his hand. He embodies a kind of forgiveness that can't be communicated only in words. This is almost physical. The flesh receives the grasp of a hand of forgiveness. The Jesus character in this moment is someone who brings love. And it comes in the form of a child. I think this scene could not have been the same if this was an older son. There is something so raw and direct. Children have no pretenses. They tell you what they think. They haven't learned all the different social cues of dodging what we really want to say and do something else. I think this scene also speaks to many of us. There are many people in this room who I believe have experienced grace. Maybe it was years ago when you first met Jesus. Maybe when you first realized what he'd done for you. Maybe it took a little bit of time. And there was a transformative moment. But then, because just as Jesus warned his disciples, do not fall into temptation, there's been moments where that line, that light pole has been crossed and you found yourself on the other side grabbing the bike in whatever form that has taken in your life, falling short of the glory of God. We all have done it. And I think the message of this scene, the Jesus character of the boy, the message of the child in Christmas, the reason God comes as a baby in fragility and humility is because God wants to grab our hands to deal with the lingering effects of shame. How do we do this? Well, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, the author Philip Yancey writes this. Sociologists have a theory of the looking glass self. You become what the most important person in your life, wife, father, boss, etc., thinks you are. How would my life change? If I truly believed the Bible's astounding words about God's love for me, if I looked in the mirror and saw what God sees in me. This Christmas, I think the symbol of the child speaks to us. We define ourselves, our identity by what others think, perhaps those we've hurt, perhaps those we feel shame about, perhaps it's just the entire culture making you feel shame that you don't live up to some external standard that's not of God. But Jesus the child comes and he brings a message of grace and forgiveness. What if we lived fully in that grace? Fully, if Jesus was the person, 
who defined our truest sense of identity, continually looking on us with love, holding our hand when we've done the wrong thing, pursuing us, cleaning us, making us clean. Yes, there's a point where he saw our sin, but he's forgiven us and in our place he stood. And what if this Christmas, it's this refocusing on what Jesus has done for us because he looks on us with love. Love.